Blog Talk Radio. Something to give, either you have something to say, either you have someone to love, why, why, why are we here? There is a time for giving back, there is a need for one's own black, there is Commitments last So why, why, why Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Today is April 1st, 2020, uh, a time I think we all will never forget with this coronavirus. And uh, so we are talking to Zach Rhodes on the other side of the country in northern Vermont, and we are going to bring Zach on in a second. So we're going to do a one-hour show and now we're going to talk about all the work that Zach is doing uh, up in Vermont and with uh, Stanton Peel's Life Process Program. And let me just read a little bit about him. So uh, Zach is an author and an educational consultant working with families in Vermont. He is also an addiction coach in Stanton Peel's Life Process Program. His book, Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy with Stanton Peel, will be pub- it is published, I'm sorry, it says will be, but it's already been published by Upper Access Press. It came out in May of 2019. He hosts the podcast, um, Families for a Sensible Drug Policy, uh, on behalf of Families for a Sensible Drug Policy. Zach Rhodes is a consultant for school children who encounter life problems along with families and teachers who are stymied by their families to reach these in children. Zach developed this empathy as a child who wasn't successful at school. Moreover, in his 20s, he developed a heroin addiction, which after several years and a near-death experience, he left behind. Zach is a coach and family systems developer with Dr. Stanton Peel, his online addiction program, the Life Process Program. And with that, I'm going to bring Zach on. Hi, Zach. Welcome to the program. Monica, great to be talking to you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm glad that we finally uh, let me slow down enough that I started to do podcasts again. <laughs> glad to be here. So, how, <laughs> Yeah, well, things how definitely slowed down. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, how is everything for you out there and with your family, and what is it like in Burlington, Vermont, with this uh, crazy COVID-19 Oh, we are incredibly fortunate, both my wife and I, to be working at home. 
we have a toddler now. She's a one and a half years old who is also home with us without daycare, but yeah. we're very fortunate to be able to both work and it's not ideal and things are strange, but I don't think that that's unique to Burlington, Vermont. I think I'm sure that things are strange all over the country. So we're clearing mm-hmm. okay. We're figuring it out. How are you doing over there? So here I think it's probably uh, feels a little bit worse. I have a friend who's in rural Kentucky, and he said he can't even tell what's going on because he's in rural Kentucky. And actually people are not practicing total, you know, <laughs> self-distancing, I guess, out there. <laughs> but um, there's uh-huh. a lot of space, right? There's a lot of space. And uh, in a big city like L.A., uh, you know, they, like, slam down the city, like, it'll be three weeks uh, this this week, this Friday. So it, it's there's a lot How more people walking around my neighborhood. Sorry, what'd you say? I'm sorry, I forgot that there's uh, on radio. There's always a delay time. I said, "What are you? How are you feeling about all of that?" Uh, you know, not too good. Um, I'm an outdoor uh, exercise person, and I swim laps, and that's probably the thing that I like the most. And they close the pool annually, but then when this thing came along, they closed yeah. all the pools. So I swim laps in a, a big Olympic pool, and um, in just south of me, like six minutes in Culver City, and um, do that three times a week, and then ride my bike along the Strand, the beach in Santa Monica, with my husband on a weekly basis, if not more than once a week, and so they just shut those down, and it feels like um, they're just screwing us down. Um, we're people who go out to dinner a lot, and we go out a lot, we sing karaoke normally, and we dinner with friends and um so we have a very active social life and Kevin and I are not like uh I mean maybe me more than Kevin because Kevin works out of the house and I work in the house so I'm sick of being in the house already I'm not oh yeah let's hunt me down man this is great I'm like no like I was even thinking what other state could I go to I'm that serious like I was like is there another state where it's less Stringent, or that there's you know more rules, so that I don't, I can't feel it so much here. Um, that's how I feel about it. So it's really hard, and I'm trying to, uh, you know, just have way. You know, of course we can go out our door and walk. So I'm doing that, or have a plan, and have sort of a schedule. Notice that if I do that, I have a schedule with what I'll do and when I'll work out and go for a bike ride, and then, um, you know. Kind of like get through it. Do you find that your advocacy work has kept you sane and doing the podcast and stuff like that? Yeah. So anything that keeps me, I started doing it, and I uh, actually talked to a new pilot who found out that now the FAA is going to force them to go to AA forever. Um, you know, they so, in the beginning it was yeah. So he was 29 years flying and um, with a big airline. And uh, so we talked for an hour. I sat in my backyard and took notes and talked to him, and that made me feel really sane and good, you know, as I do that work with those guys. And um, so I probably will do a podcast. I might even do a Zoom meeting for ex-steppers in our groups, the Leaving AA and the deprogramming. I'm sure that I'm going to do it. Uh, I have to pick up my car that had needed some service after this, and then, you know, I'm either going to do one tonight or the next day or something, 
Because if, if I need it, I'm sure there's other people out there who need something else too. Right? For sure, for sure. Now, did you go out of your house? You have an office where you did your work, or did you work from home already? No, uh, I work at a high school here uh, during the day, and then I do writing and stuff for uh, our online life process program here at home. So I guess I'm sort of split, but I spend a good good part of the day at, at a physical location at a high school. Yeah, yeah. And when did your schools close down? Mid-March. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's just been a couple of weeks. Um. Are you? Is it snowing up there? What's your weather like right now? No, people. People around your way are going to think that's a silly question, but you must know the area well enough to know that that's never out of the question. But no, it's actually been pretty nice. It's uh, right now. It's like fifties, sunny. We've been getting outside. A hell of oh wow! Time, so this oh, that's could have, nice. Could have happened at a worse time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, do you do you work out outside too? Do you go for runs, or you and your wife, or do you do yoga? Like, what are your uh, way to keep sane uh, with physical activity? Now I do all that stuff. I'm gonna be the only person that's healthier when we get to the other side of this thing than than when we started it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm spending a lot of time outside now. <laughs> <laughs> and why is that? Like, what have you stepped your you know your workout thing up to since this whole thing? Well, it went from about zero, maybe slightly oh, okay. more, to um, – well, it started with the – like the my, the extent of my workouts were the idea that soon enough I would start working out. And yeah. now it's become – you know, we have a young child, like I said, and, and she's our whole life. And making yeah. sure that she gets what she needs that she used to get in daycare, which her, her daycare is incredible – but you yeah. know, making sure she gets outside enough, she's exploring that she doesn't go stir crazy has been on the top of my mind. And as I've been doing that, I've been noticing, wow, this is really healthy and it feels good, and we should be out here. And so it's a little early to start thinking about silver linings to a pandemic, but that would be one that we were going to discuss it. I think I do think that is uh, there are some in LA where people are not friendly. Um, people have become uh, friendlier by. 50%. Like, so when people, when Whoa. I used to walk my dog, oh, is everything okay? Oh, sorry. Um, hello? Yeah, yeah. Good, good over here. Okay. That before when I walked my dog, and I, I, it's a pretty decent neighborhood, like with a lot of trees, and we don't even have sidewalks, and it can be hilly and whatever, that, um, people really didn't say hi to each other. Like, you know what I mean? Like 10% would say hi as they passed. And now I'm walking all the way down to my Vons. So I do like a mile walk instead of the little, you know, around a block with blue. Uh, I go all the way down and whatever. But, man, like 85% will walk by, will say hi. And people are smiling. So that's a good that's a good thing. And the homeless situation here is, was, was and is still very bad. And they are finally addressing it because it's a public health uh, crisis, actually, with them, with the squalor and the filth um, and the mental health uh, issues. But um, So there's stuff happening, and that's a relief to see because homelessness had come to West L.A. in decent neighborhoods, like right on the edges under the 405. So pretty bad, and uh, I'm sick of it. But now, oh, they have all the money. They had the money before. and um, But, you know, i, I got to guess, i got to 
look at the positive, move forward. That's the, um, the least of my uh, concerns right now. But um, so I want to get into talk about your book and uh, tell me why you uh, wrote your book. Let's start with that. Why did you write this book? Well, some of the things that you're talking about are actually a pretty good inroad into the concepts in our book, which is that we have been realizing that our resources, the things that we used to lean on to give us purpose and joy in life are diminishing, even if, even if less so for some of us than others. And what we, you and I were just talking about is, well, how are we, you know, what are those things that we rely on as lifelines in order to bring us the most happiness that we possibly can? And that's pretty obvious, you know, this talking about life and what's joyful and what's purposeful in that sense, everybody can pretty much sign on to with very few exceptions. That is the idea that Stanton and I, when we wrote this book, had about addiction also. Um, We see addiction as just a destructive coping mechanism, you know, and it's an attachment, a lot like the, the folks you've had on from the Freedom Model. And if people don't know that program, they should check that out. Um, we believe that there's nothing inherently different in the process of what we're calling an addiction than any other sort of habit that people could form. And it's just one that provides rewarding experiences, ones that we continue to pursue despite their harmful effects. And sometimes those harmful effects go into depths of despair and self-destruction. So it's a sliding scale, but that's how we feel. That's what we think addiction is. And there's nothing magical or inherent inherently biological about this definition of addiction. And it's certainly not limited to drugs either. So we wanted to write a book about what addiction is. If you're even going to use that term, we decided that it would be useful to give this phenomena a term and then how to overcome it and how and we distinguish the ways of, of overcoming it in really a common sense method of the ways that we're told we ought to overcome addictions which uh, we largely disagree with. So a lot of the institutions that we're calling on now to lead us through this pandemic, institutions which I understand we must trust, um, haven't been very trusting with concepts like addiction. Uh I think that they're wrong about it, and I think that calling addiction a disease is really largely harmful. And so that's our book. The The way that Stanton and I got together to write it is that I work with kids, and so I consult with families and with teachers uh-huh. and the kids that I work with are um, the, the, the things are usually brought to my attention. If a student has what they're calling as challenging behavior. Right. And so whenever there's a problem that needs to be solved, I could be brought in and I usually start with talking to a kid and asking really simple, obvious seeming maybe questions like what do you want to achieve? Why are you having difficulty achieving it? what's needed to change in order to correct course. And then we sort of talk through that. And then I start bringing in different participants in the kid's life, teachers, family members, administrators, and we all reach kind of a collaborative common sense solution that's reasonable for everybody involved. And the solutions are, you know, if everything's done right, they're self-maintaining. They put the kid on a positive reinforcing path. Uh And there's no reason why we would have to deal with, addictions in any way that's different than that. So as I was starting to write, kind of blogging and writing about these problems that I've been seeing about labels that are put on kids rather than 
you know, rather than allowing the people that are in a kid's life to do what they know is best and sort of work things out with a kid. Mm-hmm. Stanton was for the past 40 to 50 years dealing with that same problem in the addiction realm. So we became interested in each other and we put these concepts together in one book. So it's a message to both people who are rearing children. Mm. And then also to say, and by the way, these concepts that perhaps you've signed on to, which maybe they're a little easier to sign on to when we're talking about kids and development, they apply to addiction too. So we trade off chapters, childhood uh, challenge, behavior challenges in childhood, addictions, mm-hmm. how they all kind of come together, and uh, right. some, some advice for overcoming those things. Well, uh, you know what? You made me, you know, I had to fess up and tell you that I hadn't read your book. Usually I read a book before I have somebody on, but it's just been, you know, and I realized when I said, like, I just couldn't read another one of those books because I feel like I could have a master's in, like, alternatives to 12-step, right, in these addiction books, right, sure. that have been written, that are finally, there's plenty of them now. There weren't when I left AA in 2011. There weren't a lot. Stanton was definitely out there um, writing. Um, so I just want to, for those of you who are listening, um, I'm talking to Zach Rhodes, and he wrote the book Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy, along with Stanton Peel. You can get it on Amazon. I'm looking at the page right now. There's a paperback for $15 and um, a Kindle for 8 and some change, and um, there's even a couple of used copies. So I think I'm going to get it because of what you're talking about. Now, you really inspired just some conversation about a group of things, right? And I'm going to start with words and language because and I'll give a little background, you know, with me and many people, and I think even people in our country who are throughout the world, I know throughout the world, um, Australia and the U.K., um, and some of the northern countries, Sweden, are very heavy, heavy, already laden with Alcoholics Anonymous uh, ideology, a 12-step, right, in, in their therapies or even in the lexicon of the world, you know, of... Uh, what people think, even though they've never been in AA uh, or NA, uh, you know, these are people in the film business and wherever. They're everywhere, and they have a grant. Like even uh, Amy Klobuchar's father, you know, she thinks she's an expert. God bless her. I mean, I liked her, but, you know, she has a father with 25 years of sobriety. So there you go, right? Um, so I want to talk about one of the things that was important for me and I see with other people is to change our language and what we, people called themselves, even though you didn't have a drink for 36 years, right? Uh, remember my son saying, why are you calling yourself an alcoholic, Mom? You know, how many years have you never, you know, had a drink? And he, he was a little boy when he said that. I said it, and I was, you know, and he like kind of cocked his head, and it didn't really make sense. But so first we had the word of alcoholism used, still used by many people, and um, because there's many steppers in the field, right? And then you have um, uh, AUD, alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, and yet the word addiction, and I, I agree, like I think that if you want, when people Google, right, if, that until we get out of using the word addiction, you kind of have to use it, and maybe the next book it won't have to be in there, right? But if um, people are still using it, so I'm addicted to, you can be certainly addicted to alcohol, and certain drugs are physically addicting, right? Um, but then there's the behavior. But back to these words, so addiction. And then I started to use problematic alcohol and drug use. It was really my favorite, but it was so long. It was so cumbersome. You know, we're all bloggers, and how many times am I going to write problematic alcohol and drug use? You know, <laughs> it's so long. 
the addiction was so easy, and then you use AUD and SUD, and then there was a spectrum, and you know the DSM-5, and we had a period where it was a it was a mild case, and then you had a moderate case, and then you had you know you had a um, what's the word when they when it was severe case of alcohol use disorder, which is really there is a spectrum, right? There's a problematic user of it, uh, you know, hurts your life, it doesn't destroy your life, and how do you uh, you want to talk about that a little because I think there's just we could talk about that uh, just a little bit here. Your thoughts on the words that have been given and the labels and labeling people. I don't have too much of a problem with well, I don't have any problem with all of the terms that you just used, um, except for the same problems that you brought up, which is that they can become confusing, a little bit cumbersome, and um, but also. I, I don't know how to then apply that to something that we would call in the same framework as something like an alcohol use disorder, which is love addiction, like Stanton wrote about, or gambling addiction, or, you know, an addiction-like involvement to um, playing games or using technologies or, or anything that it could open up to in life. So I, I think it's important to give things a name but I don't think what we should do, as I'm sure you would agree, um, you could stop me if you don't, but I don't think we should apply some term and as a as a piece of language that's visited upon somebody else. You know, we can use a term to describe an experience that people have, and that's what we do. We use the word addiction. We're kind of taking it back from the you know, institutional idea of what it means to be, quote, an addict, mm-hmm. and we're applying the word addiction to explain a broad experience that somebody could have. So saying that one has an addiction is to us saying that somebody has become involved with something, has a relationship with something or someone else that they're over-relying on to get them the things that they would like in life. And they're realizing it like, Oh man, I've been using this as my only tool. And there are several others that we thought that we could use. And uh, you know, so I got to, kind of remap what I want to do here. Mm-hmm. We just name that and we call it addiction. And I've, I have to admit my bias here because uh, having read Stanton's work, that's the road that he and Archie Brodsky went down. Like, all right, let's reclaim the word. And so I'm sure I could be convinced that there'd be, that there's some better way to go about talking about this whole phenomenon. But for now, yeah. it really has been easy, easiest for me just in a, a write, you know, in a prose kind of a sense. And also just in, understanding it in my mind to give it that category and letting the category be broad and, and also well-defined, which I think we do pretty well in our book. Yeah. Well, I, I just went on Amazon and I bought it. <laughs> so I just bought a, <laughs> yeah. a, paper, a paper copy. Uh, okay. So it sounds to me, let me say uh, it back to you, see if I got it clear to you. you you're not, you don't have as a problem as much as I do with, cause I really do have a problem with the word alcoholism and alcoholic. Uh, it's such a it's such a old outdated word that brings up the looming Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you know, uh, Bill Wilson suit and all that stuff. And I don't have a problem actually with using the word addiction or you know alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, um, saying that somebody has a disorder uh, and then um, fixing it. I mean, one of the things that I find so disturbing, uh, and then we'll get more down these questions that I have is the way that the recovery uh, world movement, whatever you want to call it, 
went from being recovered and moving on to being in recovery forever. Can you address that in your thoughts, you and Stanton, and and in your book, and if you handle that, and how do you handle that? Oh, um, you mean, so rather than the idea that people have overcome a problem and then that problem is behind them, it's that they've had this specific problem that they must say that now they're in recovery and in perpetuity. Right, right. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I have this. I have that same problem. And to be honest, you got me thinking just now. That problem for me started off before I really thought much about addiction and you know the theoretical framework for it. It started for me when you know the labels applied to kids. I actually, yeah, I'm so yeah. anti-labeling. I'm, yeah. I, I see that there's a place where it can be useful, but those places are so there's such thin margins. Um, that I just I try not to use them whenever I whenever I can. I mean, in the absence of the kinds of collaborative solutions I was talking about that I help people form with kids, there's a tendency to confront all kinds of challenging behavior if you're a person who's in the helping profession, say, um, by either punitive measures or through the ostensibly more benign seeming, but I think equally self-denying diagnosis of disorders. So for kids like ADHD, that's a label that's placed on somebody that, you know, they can have the idea that, okay, I have ADHD and that means I'll always have it rather than saying there are certain traits that make, that can make it difficult for me to jive with particular environments. So there's some working around I have to do with my resources, um, the environments that I'm in and just, you know, tuning into myself. So I actually hate labels and um, the idea that people are in recovery forever. I just, it's just not a, it's just not a way that we talk about any other kind of life experience that people have other right. than their literal medical experiences. So I think I'm with you there. Okay, cool. Um, let's see. Um, what is a favorite, do you have a favorite part of your book? Is there something you could read uh, like a piece paragraph out of your book? Um, oh, you know, I have, I don't know if this is my favorite. It just happens to be, I have the book in front of me right now and it's bookmarked. Uh, yeah. I, I invoked a lot of the folks that work at the university of Pennsylvania on, on like Martin, uh, Marty Seligman and Carol Dweck. And I guess she's from Stanford, uh, but Angela Duckworth, people who actually study happiness and they're the first way. I don't know. You're, you're probably familiar with them, but they're the first. No, actually people I'm not, really I'm not familiar with them. Yeah, oh, good. I don't okay. know about them. Um, they're, they're a wave of professionals that is studying in a, in a real way, in a real academic, rigorous way, what it means to be happy from like a social psychological perspective and um, how people can implement happiness, success, grit, and things like that. So we had a whole chapter talking about just the practical ways that people can be happy. And one of my favorite quotes here, I'm just going to read the quote and then I'll go to the subsequent part of the chapter, and you can stop me if it gets too lengthy, but this is a quote from uh, Marty Seligman from a book called Learned Optimism. He said, curing the negatives does not produce the positives. Strangely, one can be both happy and sad. The skills of becoming happy turn out to be almost entirely different from the skills of not being sad, not being anxious, or not being angry. When you lie in bed at night and contemplate your life and the lives of the people that you love, you're usually thinking about how to get from, say, positive two to positive six, 
not how to get from negative five to negative two. So that idea about what it means to look forward in life and have some optimism, have reasons to get out of bed each day. This is me talking now. Are you know they mm-hmm. basically make the framework for our book. So I wrote later on in the book about Nora Volkow and how her idea of addiction and a disease sort of refutes this quote that I just read. I, so I wrote. Uh, sorry, one second. That's okay. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I don't know about those people that you mentioned, but um... the uh, positive psychology people. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So there, there. This is um one of the things that Santa and I agreed on right away when we first oh, talked. Oh yes, met, yes. Was okay. that there's I, a I whole think it was not... range mm-hmm. of these people who study this stuff that that we're surprised they don't weigh in on everything addiction. Because all the things that they're saying so totally fly in the face of the, the, what people in the addiction field say, then it seems like how can these two bodies of work lay parallel to each other without ever coming into contact? So we actually did write about Nora Volkow uh, later in the chapter. And so we said, the view taken by Nora Volkow, the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, um, in an article entitled, Addiction is a Disease of Free Will, claims that addiction is just a disease of the brain. Oh, it's not just a disease of the brain, but one in which the circuits that enable us to exert free will no longer function as they should. The drugs disrupt these circuits. The person who is addicted does not choose to be addicted. It's no longer a choice to take the drug. And, and I say later in the chapter, is this idea of humanity, what our treatments and our lives should be built around? Volkow and her cohorts act as though only the most basic feelings are available to humans seeking pleasure or avoiding pain. But as Seligman and his colleagues emphasize, life involves more than that. Think about the greatest joys in your life. Were they purely physical pleasures or avoidance of pain? Or were those deeper satisfactions, like something that comes from achieving a valuable goal or forming a deeper relationship with another person or developing a skill at a challenging activity? And did this joy come about easily or did it take effort and sacrifice? So our, our main claim here is that joy is a fundamental value and it's a bulwark against addiction. And just like overcoming addiction through purpose, which we also talk about, um, it requires people to find meaning in their lives. So we're all, we can't avoid this, you know. It's, right. Um, and our lives and the lives of people who are successful and the lives of fictional stories that we read, it's just sort of, that's the kind of common sense that we're talking about that, um, becomes stymied when we talk about addiction as a disease that only professionals can deal with. Yeah, I think that uh, it's really important that, well, I, I think that this whole virus thing, too, how it closed all the AA meetings down, and it took a little while. Uh, I know that uh, one of the biggest meetings closed early, and I was happy to see that because they are real breeding grounds not only for some bad brainwashing, but for disease, because of how close they sit. Mm. Like when you think about, even in church, people give each other space, uh, maybe a foot or two, right, unless it's a really crowded church. Or I know some of the mosques closed early because they're laying on the, you know, their their carpets, and they're laying really on the floor with putting their face to the ground. And who knows how clean they were. Now they're all clean, right? But they're, the meetings closed down, closed down, and they're online. Um, but that I think that um, when this is over, a lot of them are going to realize they don't need the meeting. Mm-hmm. And 
that there will be an opportunity for new new thought and new ways and new books, whether it's yours, uh, the freedom model, um, that you get a life, you know, and there's obviously people that need detox and maybe we'll have medical detox and not people in houses in California and Southern Florida. You know, maybe there'll be, um, you know, well, we could talk about this too, treatment. You know, what do you think about the state of treatment and uh, how could it be better? Because you're a lot younger than I am, um, you know, so just your viewpoint. Your yeah. Well, the state of treatment, in my view, is god-awful, really. I mean, I, I think it was a boon that we've been able to incorporate things like methadone and suboxone as, as drugs that people who want them could take if they – if they feel they want them. But I also hate the idea that that the thoughts around what substitution drugs are have now become more than just, well, if somebody wants a drug, let's make it available so that they can get a drug safely and uh-huh. so it's pure. That that has shifted into something like, you know, it's become assimilated into the standard disease boxes, things like you need this drug in order to survive because you're an addict and you'll you're in long-term recovery. So uh-huh. I think that we are just spinning our wheels like a like a treadmill you're like you say i'm i don't know how much younger than you i am but i know that i'm a young person in the field and i know that i'm seeing perhaps a a better version of the field than a lot of my colleagues now but i still see that we're trapped in this cycle and is that the cycle that's come with matt you know people now saying okay um you're going to use you know methadone which i know has been around a really long time and Suboxone, right? Is that the other? Um, right, you know, right. I, I want to talk about this because I became friends with a young woman who I think is in her 30s, early 30s now, who I met on one of the blogs. I think it was like maybe the Orange Papers early on before I had maybe Stinking Thinking. Were you a blogger on Stinking Thinking and Orange Papers back way back before they existed? Mm-mm. No. Okay. So I met a young woman who had a heroin um, problem and I knew nothing about that. I, you know, drank and smoked too much pot, and um, uh, as a teenager. But um, so she had gone to NA and it failed, and then there was the whole Suboxone thing. And yet the mentality in our culture at that time, which was 10 years ago, it was so much judgment, right, about it. And then we had the opioid, um, you know, kind of big problem that huge with the the um, Oxycontin and the overprescribing of that, um, and and I, you know, I had friends from Inwood where I grew up in northern Manhattan. Not not many, but there were a few that used heroin. I never saw it, or no one would. It was like a very secretive thing because there was such taboo around heroin when I was growing up. The only really persons who did it were the guys coming back from Vietnam, and um, and we didn't like that was something just it was like completely hands off. Like we had plenty of fun with alcohol and marijuana. Um, but I had a friend who did wind up using it and getting it, you know, I don't even know addicted, but I think that she was. And, um, and you know, I said to her, you know, like, didn't you just, like, quit? And uh, <laughs> she never went to AA or NA. And she said, yeah, you know, when I got pregnant, we decided, okay, that's it, we were done. And we were sick for three days, and um, that was it. And they didn't need any drugs to quit. And they didn't need any drugs to stay on forever to maintain. 
So I know you have a history. Do you want to talk anything about your history? And if you don't want to talk in detail, but just about the whole process of when I was growing up and if people did my age group just quit, just like smoking. Um, and how yeah, do you well, feel? Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, no. And, and and how do you feel about that? Because you don't die from withdrawal from opioids. You die from withdrawal from alcohol, for sure. You can. Um, and there are benzodiazepines you can die from, a withdrawal from. But uh, heroin, no. Opiates, no. That's not true. You don't die from that. You can just, you just, you're like, I, I sat with my sponsor and heroin users that she sat with for three days um, as they came off heroin. And... Um, I was like, gee, God, I would never do that shit. I wouldn't want to. But anyway, <laughs> what what do you think about that? Well, I, I should just start by saying I'm not opposed to making those drugs available just as drugs themselves. I'm actually yeah. deeply in favor of making drugs more available, not less available. So right. I do – I do make statements that can split a crowd, but I don't think they always know why they're split. Um, <laughs> for instance, my, my wife works at the Chittenden Clinic, which has actually grown in popularity and, and some level of fame for having a, a fairly cohesive system of delivering uh, medication-assisted therapy. And mm-hmm. my, my gripe is not that the drugs are available. That, I think, is great. It's like we're, my problem with it is that that seems to be a crowd that has the potential, the folks who are in favor of making those drugs available, those people seem to have the potential of really, really grasping what addiction is, that it's something that is just part of the warp and woof of life, and it's not some you know, mechanistically oriented biological trait that people have, and mm-hmm. they can just be compassionate and all at once um, understand that people are going to uh, make choices on their own, and we're not going to stop people from using drugs forever. And my problem with it is that the, it, the entire movement, the MAT, to be able to solve more problems than it can, and that's my problem, is that mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. one area of medicine that I think shouldn't really be medicine, it should just be drugs that are available, but if it's going to be, it's one area of medicine that I think actually could apply in some useful way to the amelioration of addiction problems, and I think it's shooting itself in the foot. Um, you mentioned that I had my own history with heroin addiction. I would call it an addiction because it, you know, it was a drug, and I relied on the drug to get a, a certain kind of pleasure that I believed that I didn't have the ability to generate on my own. And when I quit my addiction, when I decided that I wanted to use heroin less and then eventually not at all. It was because I could see that my entire relationship around it was that I was just relying on it for everything to answer the same way that MAT tries to answer problems that it can't answer. I was trying to rely on heroin to answer problems in my life that it couldn't possibly answer. And so when I started realizing some of the things that I had at my disposal and some of the resources and some of the things that I cared about through Mm -hmm. more healthful life channels, Things like the, my relationship with my wife, my career, um, you know, stuff like that. I was able to quit, and I, I didn't do much thinking about uh, detox or you know withdrawal or anything like that. I know that not everybody's as fortunate as I am to just find those life channels sitting there before them to just right. take advantage of at any moment. So mm-hmm. one of the biggest 
bits of pushback that I fully accept from the book is that, well, look at your experience. You're so privileged. And I know that I am. But, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I don't say in the book that everyone ought to follow my path and that my story um, is, the, is the blueprint for everyone who's trying to overcome an addiction. But what it does show is that it's possible and that it can't be true for everybody, at least, that right. addiction is a preordained disease and that it lasts with somebody forever because it's not true for me. I forget what the question was. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I Well, okay. It's, I, I totally get you. You know, when I was talking to um, the pilot yesterday uh, and I would go off like, because it just is such a weird time, you know, and you can feel it like, uh, and this will be a tangent, but like I'll be laying in bed and like just falling off to sleep. And then I realize what's going on all around me in my city and in all the hospitals and people losing their jobs and, and I can feel it. And Kevin and I, uh, well, this is, but it, then it's global. You know, it isn't just the United States. It isn't just L.A. It isn't just the United States. And then, you know, we, I know people who live in Spain and all these people that I've made friends with that live in Ireland or like different places in the world, right? And um, and then there's this, like, distraction. I'd be, like, in the middle of talking to them. And anyway, but um, so what I was talking about, because actually I do remember now because I did eat some food. That is helpful. Like, sometimes I'll be, like, intermittent fasting and I'll be, like, Oh yeah, I didn't eat enough. <laughs> Cause, and then I'm like fatter. I lost. I gained like ten pounds with this, you know, coronavirus thing. Speaking of like exercise, and it's <laughs> like, okay, I gotta change how I eat. You know, more green juice. Let me exercise more. But what I was saying was that generationally, I watched people just quit. And Stanton, from the very first time I interviewed him, talked about um, the, the best example was the vet, Vietnam vets who came home and just quit. Now some came home and didn't quit. Right, and they, you know, and remember the guy smoking hashish or whatever. But uh, that the people that I personally knew and watched just quit. And then I, you know, there was of course the the, the ones in in NA, and there were actually very few. There were so few, if you think of, if I look back, who had a real heroin problem and quit. And um, you know, there was a, a real mixed bag of in NA. And we only went there because people in AA didn't want to hear us even talk about marijuana or that we uh, tried LSD or whatever. Um, so that's what we were talking about, just being able to quit, you know. And you were saying, well, you were privileged. Well, well, my friend wasn't privileged, you know, who just quit at all. They were considered, you know, uh, somewhere between poor and middle class. And... Um, um, nobody from Inwood was privileged where I grew up, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad that I, I grew up in um, middle class, and I guess you consider if you're poor, if you all live in a one-bedroom apartment when you're born, is that being poor? <laughs> I don't know. I kind of think it is. I think if you live in a one-bedroom apartment, when and, and I slept in the hallway, that I think that was poor. Mm-hmm. My father became... Um, a police officer and went to college at the same time he was married and had three children and he was 20 in his early 20s so different generations you know we i think we really got it we could you and i could probably just talk about our society and what's going on here and the way we've um things are so bad for millennials and um are you a millennial or are you a, a gen x what counts as a millennial well, i'm 33 so i guess oh, i'm somewhere I- in that range yeah but you're young. Yeah, I think I think you are. 
Um, so this is a total, you know, non-secular, I guess is the right word. How much is a, a, an apartment in Burlington, a one-bedroom apartment? Um, that's going to be a range. I, don't, I guess I haven't lived in an apartment for the last, since um, Samantha and I have been married, so for the last six years or something like that. But um, I guess between, for a one-bedroom, and it's a decent one-bedroom place, anywhere between 800 and 1500 bucks. Wow, nice. And um, <laughs> that needs to happen. Like, I don't know, is that considered high? Or, I mean, 800 is, that's pretty decent. Yeah, I don't know. I think anyway, that we have a pretty, we're kind of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I don't want to go off. I want to talk more about you and your book and your work. So um, let's talk about the work that you do with Stanton in the life process. Tell, tell me about that. Oh, good, good. So we wanted to put our money where our mouth is, you know, so we can say that we hate the way that the treatment industry looks now, mm-hmm. but where does that leave people? You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's something that I've noticed about people who leave AA, if they're lucky enough, they find a group like yours who sort of talks about that and then talks about how they're dealing with their lives without AA. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody's so lucky to have something that they sort of identify as an addiction and then, and, and, and who doesn't necessarily agree with, or is perhaps vulnerable to believing um, standard addiction treatment. Not everybody's so lucky to, to find something that, is built around common sense. So the life process program is something that Stanton began and I've added to that it's an online program. So people come and they, we have reading available for them, videos, interaction one-on-one, either through Skype or call or even Mm -hmm. chat. It's just depending on people's preferences. Um, And then also the main, the main course of the program is split into eight different modules. Um, all of which sort of talk about dimensions of people's life that they might want to think about and whatever their involvement is that they feel they're addicted to or whatever their addiction is clearly has some role that is playing in at least some of these dimensions of life. So we lead them through these written exercises and we ask them questions through like a cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy style. And we ask them to kind of look into their life, what's going on in your life, what kind of skills do you have and resources do you have what do you value? And then also, if you're looking at your your addiction, what does that say about what you value and what do you hope to achieve? All those sorts of things. And right. the coaching part of it is we answer those questions through text at the beginning, and we do sort of a motivational interviewing. So when they answer those questions, we reflect back to them until we can perhaps come up with some reasonable goals. So we have them, we have people kind of tell us what their goals are. We extract that out of them, not, not tricking them, but it's questions tailored to get the kinds of answers that might lend themselves to some goals. And the coach's job is to help them put those into practice. So it's something that people can do online at their leisure. There's no time element associated with it. And we can sort of schedule arrangements if they want to do more talking. Other than that, they're just doing exercises. And we help them go through a, a list of really common sense, practical questions about life built around therapies that people have, you know, therapeutic models that people have come up with before and with a non, in a really non-judgmental way and in a way that says, Hey, it's your path, but um, you know, and just helping them reflect, 
we'd lead them through this thing. And most people just had a review done uh, on us and what they're about to share. Most people come through it happy with it and thinking, damn, I'm so glad that I thought about that. It was so obvious, yet some of the most obvious answers about people's own lives are they feel profound. Wow, that's really great. I'm so glad that uh, Stanton wrote the rebuttal to that New York Times piece, which is what made me say I have to interview you know Stanton again. It's been a while, and he talked about that piece, and we talked about other stuff. And then you know, bringing me you know around to you, which we've been talking about. You know, I interviewed her a long time ago for you and I to finally do something um, again. So can you, and, and the reason I'm excited is because, you know, there's other 12-step things, but they, you know, tend to be really expensive. And so, and I think especially with this coronavirus, it helps this online thing. Can you tell us the, uh, and the listeners, by the way, listeners, we're listening to Zach Rhodes, and um, he wrote the book, let's see, he, I actually was going to promote this thing on my, uh, on a page for you guys, but I'm going to just stay focused here. The life process program is what we're talking about. Uh, the lower, the lowest end that someone could uh, get help to like a full package. Can you talk about uh, what you get and money? So like the lowest, the cheapest thing that you could get and get help with a coach. Pricing, I guess that would be. Yeah, it. There are really just two uh, differentiations in pricing, and I should just say thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about it. One of the things that I've started to do uh, with Stanton is some marketing and I guess really you'd call it branding. I want people to be aware that the program exists. And uh, I've noticed that people's main question, uh, almost always a first question is, well, how much does this thing cost? You know, how much am I going to get robbed for this program? So I do actually, I think it's actually a very good strategy for us and helpful for other people, just valuable to lay the prices out. It's $59 a month. And so if people pay, it, and, or in other words, $2, just under $2 a day. Well, and with that, people get um, everything that I just talked about. Uh, they get extra, ex, written exercises. They go through um, eight, eight different modules of exercises. They, get, they have coaches that are assigned to them. They can sort of choose by looking at our bios who might drive with them the most. And we're kind of talking back and forth with them. There, there is reading that we have assigned that they can do at their leisure and there are videos and we host a Facebook group and then also a group Skype or group zoom or Skype sessions also. So all of that's for $59 and then it costs an additional $80 for a one hour session with a coach face to face. We even tell people that there's no, you know, if, if people are getting what they need from doing the modules, a face-to-face coaching session is not required. People can finish the program and we get a certificate at the end uh, without have, without ever doing a call with a coach. Although we do offer one 20-minute call for free. Uh, we front load that call just to make sure people are properly oriented with the program. Wow. That's really affordable and really great. And I think that uh, one of the things that I see that's helpful is that price right and that we have all these different platforms now and we're all getting a little more savvy even somebody you know older over 50 like me i've had to learn how to blog and whatever but the zoom i had to do it because i took a writing workshop uh, last saturday and then we did a a virtual cocktail hour 
with Kevin and I and two other couples. And then it was like four couples. It was really fun. We did it for an hour. We're going to do it again. And then I think I might just do um, – anyway, so I, I think affordability is great and uh, even motivational interviewing. Can you explain what that is to the listener who doesn't know what motivational interviewing is? Are you there? Did I lose you? Zach? Damn. I um Zach, are you there? I think he yeah, it dropped. He, it looked like he'll he'll come back. We have seven minutes left. And I see we have a listener in the queue. Hi out there to Kevin. Uh thank you for joining us. Um, I have not done any kind of um, chatting. There are, actually are some people in chat room. This is fun. Um, uh, listening. Uh, anybody, you can go to the chat. I'd love to see. We used to have chat rooms that were just packed full with people. Um, let me see if he's going to come back in. I'm going to tell him to call back in. I bet you he is. He just lost the call. He. Um, let's see. I'm going to text him. Hold on, everybody. So how are you doing, everyone, uh, out there in uh, Blog Talk Radio land? If you'd like to do, if you'd like me to do a podcast where we talk about the coronavirus issue and what it's doing around the world, because we have people in the groups uh, that are from all over the world, Australia. Oh, there he is. Let me let him back in. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, we we lost you. I was like, oh, so yeah. just giving some fill time. All right, well, we got we have six minutes left. Uh, and what I was saying, I think, is that it's really great to have something that's affordable. And um, with the platforms, with what's going on, even makes it even people are probably going, oh, this is so uh, you know easy. And there's there is nothing like in person. But I have to tell you, the Zoom um, was pretty amazing. Uh, with the writing class, because I've gone in person with her and thought it was going to be not as good, but the teacher is the teacher, you know what I mean? The people make the people, and um, obviously if people are alone and they don't have anybody that they're living with, it's got to be much harder, you know? So um, tell me whatever, five minutes left we have, what else would you like to tell everyone who's listening? And we are we are talking to Zach Rhodes, who is out of Burlington, Vermont. He works with children and he also works with Stanton Peel's online program. The process is, let me go back to the website, it is called the lifeprocessprogram.com. And Zach, you are you also have a website, don't you? Let me just go. Um, do you have a website um, or is it yeah, we, just Facebook? You do, okay. right? We, yeah, I, have a, I host a podcast called The Social Exchange. And that's a, a Libsyn podcast. If, you, if people just Google the social exchange, they can find that. I actually don't have a Zach Rhodes website, but we do have a, a website, outgrowingaddiction.com, currently in construction and, and back online April 1st. So revamping it. And, of course, the, the Life Process Program, which we were just talking about, is lifeprocessprogram.com. And I actually should hasten to say that if people – I think what we're offering is affordable and, and fair, but – People are thinking, you know, I, I enjoy the concepts here, but not interested in paying money, certainly not straight away. We mm-hmm. have made our website and are continuing to 
create content on the website that people can access for free that are things that they can take away and they're valuable and perhaps the free content blogs, videos that we offer for free are, are enough that people never have to use our site. But, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's good for us that just people are aware of it and we're getting help from it. So lifeprocessprograms.com. Okay, great. Um, and I want to give a shout-out to the name of the book. So, again, we're talking to Zach Rhodes, and the name of his book that he wrote along with Stanton Peel is Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease <clears throat> Therapy. Um, I just want to finish up just talking. It's two people... Uh, I feel especially strange in my city now. And I think that, uh, you know, whatever the good that can come, and I do think the world needed to change. Um, I hate that it takes this way, and I hope they don't take our freedoms away for too long. You know what I mean? And um, is your state considered to be as strict as we are here in California, stay-at-home order. I don't. Well, we we are a state. We are in the middle of a stay-at-home order. Um, I don't know if it is as strict as what you're all going through. You know, I don't. I don't feel like individuals have had too much freedom taken away, except, of course, the ability to work. You're not what's considered an essential worker, but mm-hmm. mainly it, the orders have been for. There have been strong suggestions that people stay in their homes and not gather, but that's not, at least as now, uh, enforced unless your business is trying to stay open the middle. Mm-hmm. If I understand, it's a little bit more strict where you are. Well, I think we have that many more people. How many people live in Burlington? Do you have million, a million, or are you smaller than that? No, Burlington is uh, such a small city. I mean, we might, we may have like 100,000 people in Burlington, and that's including the, the college crowd, so... We're a tiny um, state from a tiny city, you know. It's nice. I've, I've been there. I have a cousin who lives there and works for Coca-Cola, and um, I should visit him again. I visited there with my husband and uh, his friends from his college buddies about three or four years ago, and I just loved it. I was like, yeah, I could live here. <laughs> you know, it's not you a lot of really strange? What? Uh, I remember your, that your cousin's name is Greg, and he works for Coca-Cola, and I have no idea why I remember that. <laughs> Really? Did we talk about that then? Yeah, I need you, to follow. We talked about it like so long ago, but for some reason I, I that stuck in my memory. I don't know how. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you. It was really nice talking to you. And I want to say your daughter's adorable. And I see you're, right? You have a daughter, right? <laughs> yeah, Hadley. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, say hi to your wife. I don't know her, but I wish you all well and enjoy that. <laughs> There is something special, you know, 18 months old is a beautiful age. And so enjoy that and enjoy, you know, your time that you're getting. And as opposed to we feel like we're being locked in, you know. <laughs> but um, trying to make the best of it. And uh, like my somebody said who lives in Jersey, he's like, Monica, just enjoy. You're, you're in L.A. and you're not in rainy New Jersey. <laughs> I'm trying to adjust my attitude. But it's really been a pleasure um, I want to thank you so much, and uh, we'll do it again. Again, we were talking to Zach Rhodes, the author of Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy, and you can go on to Life, the Life Process Program if you want to check out that. All right. Thank you, Monica. It's been very enjoyable. Really good time and good talking with you. Good talking with you.
Thanks so much. And good, and good day. I was going to say good night, but it's day here. All right. We'll talk to you again. Take care. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. I just want to say we'll see you again probably next week. I think while I'm being, you know, stay-at-home order, I'm probably going to be doing a podcast a week, bringing some old friends and authors in again that I haven't talked to in a long time. I want to ask you to do a few things that I never do. I never think about this, but I'm going to do it now. So I'm going to ask you to follow. If you listen to the Blog Talk Radio, go ahead and there's a place that you can, you know, follow it. And also, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, The 13th Step, and Monica Richardson. I have a film, The 13th Step, the film, which is available for free on Amazon Prime. It's free on Tubi, and then also on uh, Vimeo, you do have to pay $1.99 to rent it. I think it's worth it. Uh, And then follow me on Facebook if you want. If you need some support, I have a bunch of groups. So here they are, deprogramming from AA or any 12-step group, and leaving AA. Um, and then there's there's some other ones, but those are the two main ones. And if you'd like to be a part of those, you do need to answer the questions uh, or else we will not let you in the group. Uh, again, we were listening to Zach Rhodes. It was really great talking to him. And the, again, his book is called Outgrowing Addiction with Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy, along with Stanton Peel. And they he works as a coach at the Life Process Program, and he lives in Burlington, Vermont. I love you, Kevin. I see you there listening. Uh, My sweet, sweet, wonderful husband. And everybody, uh, we will see you out there in Blog Talk Radio Land or on Facebook or talk to you next week. Thank you and good night.